Lord, I just help us remember this morning as we uh, open the word that, that we are before you and that ultimately um, what matters is not how other people regard us, but how, how you regard us. Um, please give us wisdom uh, to understand this passage and to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, I work out uh, kind of begrudgingly at Planet Fitness. Um, I've said that before. Uh, I, don't really, I don't really like it, but it's 10 bucks a month. It's open 24 hours a day, and it's 0.3 miles from my house. So I go, happily. Um, but Planet Fitness is one of the most hypocritical places in the world. Um, they market themselves as the judgment-free zone. So it's apparently this place where uh, they have marketed themselves as the gym where you can go however you want, and nobody's going to judge you unless you are a bodybuilder. Um, if you walk in with a wife beater and giant muscles, which I have no problem with, right? Um, and you walk in with a gallon of water in your hand and you lift big weights and you grunt, they will kick you out and revoke your membership. They really will. It's happened before. They have an alarm by, by the weights. And if you drop a weight too loud or you grunt while you're lifting, the alarm goes off. I've seen it happen, okay? Um, <laughs> seriously, seriously. No, it happened when I was doing forearm curls. No, just joking. Um, okay? But, but it's, it's crazy. Even, even the people who run the judgment-free the judgment zone can't help but make moral judgments. And uh, Amer- America, I hope that's an illustration of how America just has this incredibly hypocritical and crazy relationship with the concept of judging. When I say judge, I don't mean like to angrily yell at someone or to, to be a bigot or whatever. I mean judgment is, is to make a moral evaluation to evaluate the quality of someone's life, to evaluate whether they're right or wrong, all right? And Americans just have this ridiculous relationship with this concept because any non-Christian American, their favorite Bible verse is Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged, you know? You, you talk to them about their life, they'll say that to you. And then they will turn around and get on Twitter and just destroy Donald Trump, right? He's the worst president ever, you know? It's like that college student, okay, who, who is a philosophy major, who is... Uh, committed to moral relativism, you know, that, that what's good for you is good for you, and what's good for me is good for me, who gets on ratemyprofessor.com, okay, and just destroys the professor they hate. This is the worst guy ever. He's evil, you know? That's, that's America. We, we can't help but judge and evaluate. It's a part of life. Um, and now, we in this room, uh, whether we're like that or not, we still don't escape this. Um, Everybody uh, has experienced sizing someone else up, you know, and when you meet someone new, in five minutes, you have their appearance, what they say to you, a first impression. We'll call it a first impression, but really, it's a snap judgment on whether this person is worth your time or not, whether it's worth the, the work of getting through that awkwardness to a friendship. And we've done this before, maybe not today, okay? We've all, we've all experienced this. Within five minutes, you think you have a picture of somebody. And it gets even worse uh, when you start to know people in the long term. We start to categorize uh, people we know, like our roommate or a friend of ours. We, we have an evaluation of them in our mind. Maybe we even do it with the church. I've heard people say uh, about East Cooper. Well, you know, East Cooper's the, the doctrinally sound church, but they're not like the, the service church. They don't really love the city well. And I'm like, well, there's, all, there's truth in all criticism, right? But like, who made you the arbiter of 
doctrinally sound churches, you know, like, like, come on, you know, uh, but we always do this. Um, the longer we get to know people, the longer we just form this sense of how valuable their life is. And this attitude, according to Paul in this chapter, this attitude of evaluation or judgment or speaking about the value of other people's lives or ministries before the Lord is the heart of arrogance. It's taking God's place. It's pretending that you are omniscient and that you know someone else's heart. It's foolishness. And Paul loves the Corinthians enough to personally, after all this theology we've gotten in chapters 1 through 3, he loves them enough to appeal to them personally now. And he gives them three things. He gives them his perspective on judgment, his personal perspective, how he sees it. He gives him his life as an antidote to their judgmentalism. And then he gives them a final fatherly appeal. So let's dive in. So the first part of Paul's appeal is his perspective. Look at verses uh, 1 and 2. Paul says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. If you weren't here last week, that's basically a restatement of all we did last week. Um, God does ministry, and the apostles are just servants, just God's hands and feet. But he also says that uh, the apostles are stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, a steward is someone who who manages the possessions of someone else. So think of a multi-billionaire who has like 10 houses across the United States, only lives in one of them at a time, most of them are empty, and he employs people just to take care of the house while he's gone. All right, that person's a steward. They get to enjoy, you know, the giant mansion, but it's not theirs. They just manage it, they're responsible for it. That's what, a, uh, that's what, that's what an apostle is, he, or a minister. Anybody who, who ministers to other people, everyone in this room, okay? We are stewards of God's grace, it's not ours but we, we manage it. We're responsible for what we do with it. And then Paul says in verse 2, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So going on with the metaphor here, um, there is a standard for ministry. There is a bar in the Christian life. There is, there is evaluation. All right, the Corinthians got that right. They got it right that that ministers are going to be evaluated. They got it right that people, that God's going to evaluate people, okay? But they were wrong in thinking that they owned the bar, that they knew what the bar was, that they were capable of rendering judgment. Paul says there is a standard, but the standard belongs to God. It's his. Look at how he goes on. Verses 3 to 4, he says, With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. I don't care what you guys think. Okay, I love you. That's what he's saying. I love you, but I don't care what you think. Um, he doesn't even care what courts think or what human authorities think. In fact, the end of verse 3, I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. I don't even trust my own conscience. I walk around with a clean conscience, but I'm not even sure. I'm not sure if I'm right. And why is that? Because the end of verse 4, the rubric that Paul evaluates his life after, it is the Lord who judges me. The Lord is the judge. Now, again, when we think of uh, judgment, we think of the Lord judging, typically we think of punishment, and that is a sense in which the Lord judges. You know, the end of, at the end of time, okay, the day of judgment, there will be people apart from Christ who are punished. That is true. Uh, that's not how it is in this passage, though. Um, the sense of judging here is just to evaluate and reward um, everyone here has probably seen some kind of reality TV show where they have a panel of judges, 
like American Idol or America's Got Talent. My personal favorite is MasterChef, aside from Gordon Ramsay's Terrible Mouth, okay? Um, I enjoy that show a lot. But the, the role of a judge in those shows um, is not to punish the contestants, okay? It's to evaluate their work and reward them. And that's the sense in which Paul understands the Lord is going to judge him, the sense in which the Lord is going to judge all of us. You know, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you trusted Christ, your sins are not going to be punished on the Day of Judgment. That's the gospel. Okay? If, you, if, you've re- if you're resting your life on the finished work of Jesus alone, not on your goodness, not on being here this morning, but on Jesus, your sins are not going to be punished. But your life is going to be evaluated. God's going to look at it. He's going to measure it against his standard. All right? and he's going to reward you based on how you've lived. Um, everyone is going to that day. And so here's, a, here's the big application. Um, it's just straight out of verse 5. If God is the judge, we are not the judges. Look at look what it says. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment. Do not speak about the value of other Christians' lives before the Lord. Okay, Do not pronounce judgment before the, before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and disclose the purposes of the heart. There is a day coming when people's lives will be evaluated. There's a day coming when God's going to take everything hidden. You know, everybody in here has got things hidden in their hearts, right? Motivations that nobody else knows about, okay? God's going to bring those to light one day, and everyone's life's going to be evaluated. But until then, all right, that's God's role. We're not to do those things. I'll give you a couple reasons why. Um, I think... uh, when we evaluate the lives of other people and we speak about them, um, we are pretending like we know everything. All right, so imagine if I told you this one. This is not a true story, okay? So, uh, but imagine if I told you this, this, uh, that yesterday Sarah and I went for a mile run and that I, made, I, I ran a 12-minute mile. And I was stoked about that, okay? For those of you who, do, who don't run, that's a terrible time, okay? You, mo- Some people in here could walk a 12-minute mile. If you run a 12-minute mile, you're doing great, okay? I'm sorry. Okay, I ran a th- we'll say 15 minutes, okay? Anyway, so sorry. Uh, um, and I was, just, I was just going on and on about how excited I was to run my 12-minute mile. And you're, in your head, you're like, I haven't run in months, and I could probably wake up and beat that time. Like, what, what are you so excited about, Leon, you know? And then I told you, okay, that a year ago, I had open heart surgery. Okay, again, not a true story. I haven't had open heart surgery, okay? Okay, a year ago, I had open heart surgery, and when it was over, the best I could do was get up with a walker and walk 100 feet. And that every day since then, I have trained for hours, sweat, blood, and tears to run my 12-minute mile. All of a sudden, okay, all of a sudden, a 12-minute mile is way more impressive than that Stupid college kid who woke up and ran 6.30 or whatever it is, you know? Some great, amazing time, okay? All of a sudden, my 12-minute mile is very impressive. And guys, that, that's how the Lord's going to evaluate our lives. Everybody here starts at different places. Some of you have been given wonderful gifts by God, loving families, foundations of your faith, you know? Just a, a, a disposition that makes life easier for you. That, that's not, that doesn't give you any merit before God. You know, to, to whom much is given, much is required. And others of you have started a, with a lot harder natural situations, dispositions towards struggles and sadness, family situations that are terrible and messy. And what God evaluates is not what our lives look like on the outside, but, but the progress going from one place to another. That's what he evaluates. And here's the thing. None of us knows that. You can, you can see other people's lives. You can... You can interact with them, watch them, even see them really struggle, but you don't know where they're coming from. 
You've never experienced life in their shoes. God understands. He's able to render judgment because he understands. But you and I don't. We don't get it. So, so leave judgment to the Lord. Um, and he gives more, Paul gives some more reasons. Uh, and we'll just kind of breeze through these really quickly. Um, look at verse 7. Who sees anything different in you? Uh, that, that verb, sees anything different, is really kind of discriminates. Who's the one who discriminates among you? Who, who's the one who gives gifts and chooses people? Well, that's God. Okay, he does that. Um, verse 7, what do you have that you, you did not receive? You know, again, if you think you're doing better than somebody else, that's probably because you've received from the Lord. So again, leave, leave judgment to God. And I'll say this, uh, this is kind of a side application. It's not really what Paul's getting after here. Um, Actually, wait, stop. Okay, I'll say a couple sidebars really quickly. Um, some of you guys have some objections, okay? I know you're thinking in your head. Well, Leland, um, is there ever a time to criticize someone else or to speak publicly about a Christian leader or about someone's sins? Yes, there is. Uh, when there is either open, unrepentant sin or doctrinal error, okay? The scriptures are full, okay? There's whole books of the Bible written to refute false teachers, like 2 Peter, Jude. The whole point of those books are false teachers are bad and evil, okay? So, however, that's different, okay? Calling someone out on open, unrepentant sin is different than evaluating, well, they're just not a good Christian. They're not as holy as other people are. Their, their lives are pretty useless in God's eyes. There's a difference between those two. One, is, one when you're speaking of someone else's life, it's identifiable. It's a sin in Scripture, it's an error that's very clear. Speak about those things, you know? Uh, there were Christians that just released the Nashville Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And I think that's, that's a great statement. It speaks about what the Bible says. What they're not doing is they're not, they're not evaluating other people's lives. Speaking of, he's just not a good pastor. Or he's just not, you know, he's just not going after it. He's not saying that. So that's the difference. I hope that helps. Um, second question. If we're not supposed to criticize people... What should we do when we see their sins? What should we do when we see them, when we see them struggling? I'll give you a Bible verse, okay? First Thessalonians 5 says, Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. When there are people in your life that you're really tempted to say, Oh my goodness, like, I can't believe you chose this person, Jesus. You know, like, like when, the, when you have people like that in your life, what God's calling you to do is not to criticize them or evaluate them, but to help them to move them along, to come alongside them. All right, one, one more application from this part of the passage. Um, just know that the Lord is your judge. That your peer group and what they think about you ultimately does not matter. What your culture says about you ultimately does not matter. The Lord judges you. In fact, I'll go, I'll, this is a very strong statement. I could be wrong here, but Generally, I think if everyone in your life, including unbelievers, okay, if everyone in your life thinks your life makes sense, and if everyone in your life approves of what you do, that's a good sign that the Lord probably doesn't approve of what you're doing. If, if your life looks peachy to the world, if it looks like things are going just like they should be going, you got the dream, man. That's a great sign that God is not approving of your life. That's a little strong, but, but seriously, you live before the Lord. You don't live before people. You don't live before the culture. Look, look towards how he's going to evaluate him. Get to know him in the world. Get to know what he treasures and loves. And then make an evaluation of where your life is at. 
All right, so Paul has given us his perspective. It is the Lord who judges me. In the second part of his appeal, he leverages his life as a living rebuke. I'll say that again. He gives the Corinthians a picture of his own life as a rebuke to their behavior. Now, this is complicated. I would say this is probably the most uh, nuanced and complicated sections in the whole book. But uh, I'll just, before we dive into it, I'll just tell you what he's doing, okay? Uh, he's saying, hey, Corinthians, you guys are enjoying your comfortable, easy lives in Corinth because you're not living for the Lord. Okay, you're enjoying those lives, and you've got all this free time to argue about whether me or Apollos is better, okay, whether me or, me or Peter is better, okay? You know what me and Peter and Apollos are doing? We are dying for the Lord. We're starving, okay? That's what he's doing. Paul, Paul gives the Corinthians a picture of his life and of the life of an apostle as a rebuke to their behavior. So let's just, let's just see this for a second, okay? I'll look at verse, uh, verse, the end of verse 8. Paul says, Without us, you have become kings. Um, if you ever wanted an excuse uh, to be sarcastic uh, in the scriptures, okay, here it is. All right, Paul's using sarcasm here. The Corinthians aren't kings. They're not ruling, okay? He's saying, you're, you become kings, okay? Because you know what kings do? They judge, all right? They're acting like kings, even though they're not. Even though, it was, as we saw last week, they're, they're actually spiritual babies. Just imagine, okay? Imagine two two-year-olds, okay? Both with dirty diapers, all right? We're standing there just in their diapers, and they're dirty, okay? And they're arguing with each other over which, which parent is best. That's the picture here, okay? They're freaking two, okay? They don't, they don't know what they're talking about, right? And that's, that's what the equivalents are doing. They're, they're just infants. They're acting like kings, but they're infants. Um... And look at, uh, look at all the, the language Paul uses to describe them. Um, verse 10, the Corinthians are quote-unquote wise in Christ. They're strong. They're held in honor, not because they're living for the Lord, but because they look just like the culture around them. Um, and compared to the Corinthians, the apostles are a spectacle to the world. Look at, uh, look at verse 10. This is a really interesting word. Uh, so Paul has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like, like men sentenced to death, um, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. In ancient times, men who were sentenced to death were um, kind of like, you read this in the crucifixion accounts of Jesus, they were held up to public mocking and shame. That doesn't happen in the United States anymore. But when people were sentenced to death, uh, they, they were, you know, people were allowed to jeer at them and yell at them and throw things at them. The apostles say, Paul's saying, that's what my life is like. But this word spectacle here, uh, spectacle, uh, the best way to describe this is something that is so bad that you have to keep watching. So uh, I, uh, when I, whenever I'm wasting time and trying to veg, sometimes I'll see this, this YouTube compilation of epic fails. Have y'all seen those before? Okay, and it's, it's people that are trying to do fun things or cool things, and they just, like, like there's this gymnastics epic fail compilation like someone pole vaults and like just lands right on their head just all these things but it's so bad and you're like oh uh, i want to watch them more okay you know i want to I keep watching okay uh that's that's kind of the idea um of a spectacle it's something that is so so hor- horrifying almost so painful that you just keep watching and paul's saying that is what my life is like god has intended to make my life the life of one of his messengers an apostle a spectacle and uh, what is spectacular about Paul's life? Um, look at verse 10. He's considered a fool 
for Jesus' sake. People derided him as crazy for the gospel. Um, he's weak. Um, he's held in disrepute. People talk poorly about him. Look at verse 11. This is crazy. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. This isn't a joke. He's not, he's not being metaphorical here, okay? This is Paul's life. He hung, he was, his ministry to Jesus uh, meant that he would regularly be hungry and thirsty and sleeping outdoors and have really terrible clothing. His life was laid down. Um, the biggest description in verse 13 is that we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Um, that is just extremely strong language that I won't get into. But um, the whole point of this, the whole point, whenever Paul talks about how difficult his life is, he's not complaining, he's not just ranting, okay? He is doing this with a purpose, and his purpose here is to show the Corinthians how ridiculously foolish it is to argue about who is the better Christian or teacher. And I'll give you two illustrations that might help to help you guys get this. So imagine, okay, everyone, anyone here know who William Carey is? All right, if you've heard Buster preach for more than a couple months, you probably hear him, okay? William Carey was the father of modern missions. Uh, he left um, England in around 1800 and went to India, first missionary ever to leave England, I think, and uh, he went, stayed there for 40 years. He labored for seven years without a convert. Uh, but he just spent his life, okay? So just imagine for a second, you and your friends are visiting India, and you are, um, maybe you're on vacation or on a mission trip, whatever, but you're near William Carey's grave, and you decide just as a cool thing to go visit it, to just go see, like, you know, just go see where he was buried, whatever. Do something weird, I don't know. Anyways, um, you're on the way, and you guys start talking about Carey's life, and all of a sudden, your friend chimes in. He's like, you know, I don't really think Carrie was the real deal. I mean, he was cool, but like Lottie Moon, she has a Christmas offering named after her. Like, surely she was better. Like, why, why isn't it the William Carey Christmas offering? Anyways, things get heated, okay? And you're just, you're arguing over who's best. And uh, you get to the tombstone, and not realizing this, but on William Carey's tombstone, it's written as a prayer to the Lord, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm on your kind arms I fall. That was what he wrote on his tombstone. After 40 years, after, after translating the Bible into seven languages, all this kind of stuff. That's what he wrote as the prayer of his life. Do you think your argument would stop? You know, that picture of his humility? All of a sudden, who cares, right? And that's, I think, what Paul's doing here. You know, he's saying, man, when, we, when we're persecuted, we entreat people. We plead with people. When we're reviled, we bless people. So what are you guys doing? I'll give you a second illustration. The second thing that's going on here, I think. Um, this, uh, this weekend, or this past week, Hurricane Harvey has destroyed uh, Houston. Uh, it's been terrible, awful. Uh, we're also, sidebar, we're doing a special offering to Houston, or to the victims of Hurricane Harvey during church today. So if you feel like giving, that's a great time to do it. Um, anyways, okay. But something happened very interesting on Twitter. Uh, Joel Osteen is a pastor in uh, Houston, Texas. Um, and uh, again, I'm not a fan of Osteen. Uh, I'm not defending him. Uh, and I, I'll, I'll just say publicly, I think he's a false teacher. I'm judging him, right? According to doctrine, okay? Not his, not his value, but his doctrine, okay? He's a false teacher. Don't read his books, all right? But, okay, uh, Osteen has a giant church of about 20,000 people. Think of like five or six times the size of a building of East Coopers, okay? Just huge, all right? And uh, its doors were closed. 
to the hurricane victims for the first couple days. And people on Twitter were just destroying him. And the really evil part of me kind of liked that. Um, I'll admit that. <laughs> but uh, um, here, here, here's, my, here's my two questions to you guys, okay? Were those people right? Probably, maybe. Were they helpful to anyone? No, right? Get, get your thumbs off your phone and go help somebody, right? Like spending your energy and time thinking of a great way to jack up Joel Olstein's life is not helping anyone. And I think, I, think, I think a part of this passage is what Paul's saying is, Corinthians, arguing about us helps no one. Why don't you try to be like us? Instead of arguing about us, be like us. You see our lives? You go imitate them. Go lay your life down for Jesus. Do not argue about which one of us is best. Don't look around at your friends and say, which, which of us is the best Christian in the room? Don't regard yourself. Go lay your life down for Jesus. And I think that's one of the, one of the best first applications of this passage is just give your energy and your time and your life away to living a life that honors the Lord Jesus. If you have a problem with somebody, go confront them in love. If you're burdened by Christians who don't do anything to help the world or reach out, you do it. Don't spend your energy in life evaluating and criticizing. It's not your role. And second, again, this is kind of a sidebar application, but it's hard to miss this. Um, this, this passage shows us that what is precious in God's sight, what he really evaluates as wonderful and lovely and honoring to him, often looks horrible from a worldly perspective. The Apostle Paul's life. Just think, think, about, think about as a, a guy to model your life off of, okay? The Apostle Paul's life looks terrible through the eyes of a 21st century American. No food, no shelter, all the time. People hate him. People yell at him all the time. In God's sight, though, that's precious. So what I want to say to you guys is perhaps the most difficult thing in your life this morning, the thing that just eats you alive, the thing that causes you the most pain, is what's most precious to God. It's what, what, what makes you look most like Jesus. And the same thing in the lives of others. You might see somebody who's stressed or their life does have no margin or they're... They smell bad or something, okay? And what God sees is something precious. So uh, Paul calls us to leave evaluation to the Lord. He gives us his perspective, and he gives us his life as kind of a stinging rebuke. And finally, he gives us this fatherly appeal. Uh, Look at verse uh, 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. You know, if if you're in Corinth... Uh, verses 8 to 15, or 8 to 13, really stung. That, it's, it's meant to hurt. That kind of uh, look at my life versus yours is kind of a, a sharp rebuke. And Paul's just reminding them that I am doing this out of love. You are my beloved children. Look at verse 15. You have many guides in Christ, a lot of teachers. You don't have many fathers. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was the first person to share Christ with you. I am your spiritual father. Um. And, uh, and like a father, look at, look at verse uh, 21, okay? Like a father, Paul's going to come to Corinth, and depending on how things are going, is going to depend on his response. He can come with gentleness and love, or he can come with a rod. Uh, one, one of the funniest stories I remember uh, from my time doing middle school ministry was of four brothers. Uh, one was 15, I think one was 12, one was 8, and one was 5, whatever. And uh, mom and dad went on date night. 
okay? And surely, you know, a 15 and 12 year old can handle it, right? I mean, surely things are gonna be fine. And uh, when they got home, when they got home, the boys had somehow flipped the refrigerator over, okay? Now, I don't know how it happened, okay? But just, I mean, can you imagine, all right? Just imagine what dad does when he walks in. You know, so Paul's saying that here, like, like, I'm gonna come to you guys, okay? And if things are still in disarray, it's gonna be rough because I'm your dad in the gospel and I love you. And um, this, uh, just emphasizing this relationship is so important. Um, we, we take stinging <coughs> criticism from people who love us much better. I mean, and again, and I would say not everyone here has a good dad. Um, some of us have really good dads and we can, we can understand this much easier. Some of us have, don't have, feel like we didn't have a dad and you know, whatever. Um, but mostly everyone in here has had some kind of father figure, some kind of mentor, somebody who has given their life away to you, someone who um, you look up to. And so when you think about Paul saying these things to them, I want you to think about that person coming to you with tears in their eyes, confronting you about something in your life. Not some guy, you know, on a high horse, just preaching from the pulpit or whatever, but someone coming to you personally. That's what Paul's doing here. He's reminding them of his love. Um, so I would just say, first, this is a great model for confronting other people, if you need to do that. Uh, but second, I would say, just see, just see the Lord's heart um, in this last part of the passage. It's been kind of a tough lesson. This is really, you know, some of us can't go 10 minutes without rendering a judgment on somebody else. This really gets into our grill a little bit. But, but just see the Lord's heart for you here. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that God makes his appeal through us. It's 2 Corinthians, okay, a different book of the Bible, but he says, God is the one who makes his appeal through us. And I think, I think right here, you can see God the Father appealing to you this morning. You can see him saying, don't you know that I love you, that I care for you, that I want what, what's best for you. You, know, you. you can see Jesus here saying, Man, don't you see the scars on my hands? I laid my life down for you. I know what's best. I, I, I desire your ultimate good. And I, I love you enough to tell you the truth about yourself. I love you enough to tell you about how, how arrogant it is to render judgment on the lives of other people. And I love you enough to help you change and to give you the resources you need to change. And that's good news. I mean, I think you, I think you, you, you really don't know who loves you unless they'll tell you the truth. You know, uh, I've been teaching the Bible regularly for almost five years now, and the only person who's ever given me consistent feedback that is sometimes critical has been Sarah. She's the only one brave enough to. Everyone else is like, that was amazing, Leland. You know, and I'm like, yeah, whatever. I don't believe you, you know? And she'll be like, yeah, I don't know about that last part, you know? And that's, that's good for me. I know she loves me. You know, casual friends won't tell you when you have spinach right here, you know, or when your breath is bad, okay? But, but people who really love you, who care about you, will tell you. And the wonderful news about this pa- uh, from this passage is that God loves you enough to not leave you where you are, to tell you the truth about yourself through the word, and to enable you to change. It's good news. Trust in it. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you. Um, thank you that you, uh, you have borne our judgment, Lord Jesus Christ, that you have taken it from us, that we, um, we do not have to fear it. Thank you this morning that you speak to us and you give us grace and you, um, you are merciful to us. And so we just pray you help us to apply these truths to our lives, help us to be people that 
leave judgment to you who know when to speak and when to remain silent. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.